Please open your Bibles to the prophet Joel, chapter 3. Joel, chapter 3. This morning's sermon text will be the entirety of the chapter. This morning we'll actually be concluding our study of the prophet Joel. And I have enjoyed working through Joel so much that I have decided for my next series, Lord willing, we will just turn the page over and go through the prophet Amos, for those of you wondering. Wow. Let us give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, life-giving word, Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon? In all the regions of Philistia, are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. 
I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Thus far as the reading of God's word, may he write its eternal truths on our hearts. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we do rejoice at your kindness and grace towards us in the reading and hearing of your word. We thank you, Lord, for these last several months where we've had the opportunity to study the prophet Joel. We thank you that you have preserved his prophecy for us even down to this very day. We thank you for these precious promises that you will one day restore the fortunes of your people. And we thank you for the assurance of justice that will one day come in the earth. Would you help us now by your spirit as we consider these weighty themes? Would you help us to see that ultimately all of these words, heavy though they are, are for our good and for your glory. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. The doctrine of God's judgment against the wicked is one that causes many Christians to be uncomfortable. Many may accept that it is a clear teaching of the Bible, and so they believe it is true, and yet they'd rather not dwell on it. After all, who wants to spend time thinking about hell and eternal destruction? But, according to the apostles, this message was to be front and center of their preaching. Peter says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 that Jesus commanded us, that is the apostles and by extension all ministers of God's word, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that is the Lord Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is a truth that we confess Lord's Lord's day by Lord's day as we work through the creeds, the apostles' creed. Uh, that he will come again with glory. The Nicene Creed, as we confessed this morning, he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. And I bring all of this up because as you have heard in the reading of our scripture passage this morning, this is a theme that features heavily, in fact, I would say predominantly, it is the theme of the third chapter of Joel. And what's especially interesting for our purposes is where Joel by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has placed this chapter in his prophecy. For those of you who have been following along in our study of Joel up to this point, you'll recall that it's the first half of the book where judgment features so heavily. It's the first half of the book where where Joel pleads with the people of Judah, repent, seek mercy, because the day of the Lord is coming. Repent and seek mercy, lest you receive his wrath at the day of the Lord. And then we saw a few weeks, maybe a month ago, that the whole book turns on the hinge of chapter 2 and verse 18 where the Lord says, I was jealous for my land and I had pity on my people. And everything after that is unbelievable good news of an unbelievably gracious God who pities his people, who protects them from their enemies and who vows to provide for them. He provides for them the teacher of righteousness. He provides for them His Holy Spirit. He provides for them salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord. These are overwhelming promises of grace to all who will turn from their sin and trust in the living and true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. So then I ask, what in the world are these words of judgment doing at this point in the book? 
Well, a quick and careful glance at the opening words of Joel chapter 3 will help us to understand. He writes, In those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and then he marches into the trial that God will conduct that we'll look at shortly in the sentence that he will carry out. And what he's doing is he's linking very explicitly the words of this passage with what immediately came before it. He's linking it to those great promises of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and of salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord. And and if you look back very quickly at chapter 2, you'll notice that in between those two great promises of the pouring out of the Spirit and salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord, there's a mini-apocalypse in verses 30 to 31. Signs of judgment. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens. This is chapter 2 and verse 30. And on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Joel, in linking these passages, what many commentators think, and I would argue correctly, what he's doing is he's offering his own commentary on that previous passage. He's he's explaining what is the relationship between God's redemption for his people and his judgment on the wicked. These items are, are to remain distinct from one another, but they are not to be divided. To put that another way, According to the prophet Joel, the judgment of the wicked is part of the good news of the gospel for God's people. It is an essential component of it. And therefore, we must spend time thinking about it, and we must understand it rightly. That said, the point that we'll consider from this passage is God's judgment of the wicked is a loving means to the end of his people's eternal blessing. I'll say that again. The point of this passage is that God's judgment of the wicked is a loving means to the end of his people's eternal blessing. And we will flesh that out as we look at this passage as it rather neatly breaks down into three sections. The crime of the wicked in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. The punishment of the wicked in verses 9 to 15. And finally, the blessings of God's people in verses 16 to 21. The crime, the punishment, and the blessing. And we begin to see this theme of God's judgment as an expression of his love in verse 2. There we read that he summons all the nations to this trial. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, the valley of Jehoshaphat has nothing to do with the ancient king of Israel. Rather, Jehoshaphat is a compound word of two, of two other Hebrew words. And it, it means Jehovah will judge. And we understand that he's making a word play, and it's made very plain by what he says immediately after. And I, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, will enter into judgment with them there. And what we want to note is the reason for the judgment. We would expect him to say, I will enter into them with judgment to vindicate my own holiness. And that is a theologically true reason that is discussed elsewhere in Scripture. That is not his emphasis here. His emphasis here is not on his own vindication, but the vindication of his people. He says in verse 2 that he is doing this on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. O. Palmer Robertson explains, the people of God will be the benefactors of this judgment. The purpose of the Lord's judgment on the nations is not merely to establish an abstract principle of justice, but to advance his cause of redemption in the world. A little over 
six years ago, my wife and I had this very sweet, very adorable baby girl in our home. And we also had a very sweet dog named Emmett. And our daughter loved Emmett. And Emmett did not reciprocate. And some of you already see where this is going. One day, when this sweet, curious girl was making yet another overture, for she will not be denied, to be friends with Emmett, he did not respond kindly. He growled, and he scratched at her eye to get her away from him. Now, when my wife called me and let me know what had happened, it did not take long to determine the right course of action. The dog had to go. We gave him away to some friends. And the reason we got rid of the dog was not because I felt the need to vindicate my own honor as her father, though I suppose that is partly what would have happened. Y'all would have thought ill of me if I'd let this animal continue on with my daughter. But that wasn't my concern. My concern was my love for her and desire to protect her. In the same way, the trial which God summons the enemies of his people to is for their vindication. His focus, at least in this text, is on his love for them. And do you realize that your Father in heaven loves you more than any earthly parent loves their child? And it's not even close. And because he loves you more than you can comprehend, because he has loved you with an everlasting love that will continue on to eternity in faithfulness, you can trust him to do what is right. You can trust him because he, he sees the wrongs that happen to you in this life. He sees the hardships and the afflictions that you go through. And he looks on you with compassion because you are his child. And also because you are, on his, you are his child, he looks on knowing that he will do something about it. And that then is our first application from this text today, that we are to be encouraged by the Father's love and care for us in our times of hardship, in our times of trial. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is, is in the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus is walking by, and he has compassion on this blind man, and he tells his disciples to call him. And the disciples say, take heart, get up, he is calling you. My friends, whatever your trial, whatever your hardship is, know that the Lord takes compassion on you, and that in and of itself is enough reason to take heart, to get up, and to press on. And our Lord will press on in our behalf as we see he moves into the next section laying down charges against the nations. First of all, you'll see in verse 2, he says that they have scattered his people. Secondly, they have divided up my land. And thirdly, they have cast lots for my people. In short, what he's saying is the charge against this nation, these nations is that they have treated the covenant that God made with Israel with great contempt. They have been openly hostile and opposed to God's chosen people. And what's all the more vile about this is the very purpose for which God had consecrated them was what? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. He says to Abram that in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And they had taken that promise and despised it. And the Lord also said to Abram, he who blesses you, I will bless. And he who dishonors you, I will dishonor. And that's what we see as, as the Lord moves into now taking the role of something of a, of a prosecuting attorney, if you will, in verses 4 to 8. And he starts in saying, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something, he asks? And that's a rhetorical question. 
Some nations might make that excuse. For we know that it is a common thing in the Old Testament for God to use pagan nations to judge his people, to chasten his people. You remember well when Dr. Phillips was preaching through the the, the prophet Jeremiah, Babylon featured very heavily in that role. Um, Another famous example of such a case where God would use a pagan nation to chasten his own people is the nation of Assyria, whom the Lord describes this way in Isaiah chapter 10, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, Isaiah 10, 5. And while the Lord would use these, these pagan nations at times to chasten his chosen people for their rebellion, we also know that the honor of the Lord was the furthest thing from the mind of these pagans. As he goes on to say of Assyria in Isaiah 10, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So don't, God, God is saying, don't, don't give me this business that you're paying me back by harming my people. I sent you for one purpose, and you took it way further than that. And there are many historic incidences that that, that could be in reference here. And and I want to say that the meaning of the text is not tied to any one of them, because this prosecution happens at the last day. They are all in view. Every time something like this has happened is, is, is in view here. These pagan nations had been sent by the Lord to discipline his people, which is one thing. But they had moved on to humiliation and even destruction, which is something else entirely. It reminds me of Paul in the Philippian prison in Acts chapter 16, where the civil authorities had told the Philippian jailer that they were to keep Paul in prison safely. And what's he do? He fastens him in the stocks to torture him. He's going above and beyond the the expected command. And so it is with these pagan nations. And because these acts were out of evil and wickedness in their hearts, the Lord says, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. He says, you weren't paying me back for anything, so let's make it even now. You sold my people to a land far away. I'm going to give your sons and daughters into their hand, and they're going to do the same to you. Divine retributive justice is what he promises. And from this prosecution, what we see is, that our Lord, our God, takes the sins committed against his people rather personally. Leslie Allen comments, Yahweh champions his people's cause on this principle. Hurt my people? Hurt me. He goes on, Yahweh identifies himself wholeheartedly with his people. What the accused have done to Judah, they have done to him. And this is true not only for the Old Testament people of God, it's true for the New Testament church as well. You recall in Acts chapter 9 when Saul of Tarsus is breathing, breathing threats of murder and hostility against the church and he's, he's seeking to persecute them even further. And the Lord confronts him on the road to Damascus with the blinding light and Saul calls out, Who are you, Lord? What's he say? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul's persecution of the church was interpreted by the Lord to be a persecution of himself. And that principle carries down to this very day. He takes your sufferings and your afflictions personally. Note how he uh, describes his people in the opening verses. In verse 2 he says, my heritage, Israel. That word heritage, it, it means more than an inheritance that you would get from a will, but it it means an inalienable 
hereditary property. You are unable to be alienated from him. You are unable to be separated from the Lord. That is how close he regards you to himself. Six times in this passage, he uses the first person singular possessive. He identifies very closely with his people. And that is a precious teaching of God's word that we so often tend to neglect at the first sign of trouble. Do you understand that your Lord and Savior regards you as so near and so dear to his heart that someone cannot harm you without grieving him? Parents know well what this is like. To be saddened in your own heart when you hear that someone has been bullying your child, someone has mistreated your child in some way, and you grieve that, you have sorrow for that in your own heart. Others may have had this experience with friends. You're offended on their behalf for the rumor that's spread about them in hate. I say again that our Lord loves us more than any earthly parent. He loves us more than any friend. And he grieves the wrongs that are done to you and that he will make them right. And so I ask you this morning, are you one here today who, like so many in the world, walks around carrying a ledger either physically or in your own mind, a record of every wrong that someone has done to you. Feeling the burden, feeling the urgency that you must make that right. This passage would tell you, if that's you, on the basis of God's certain and just judgment to come, that it's on you to let it go. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue reconciliation with friends and family who have sinned against us. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue justice in this life, but what I am saying is that in the event that that person who sinned against you refuses to be reconciled, or in the event that man's courts of justice fail you, let it go. God will see to it that it is done right. And one of two things will happen. Either that person will find redemption in Christ Jesus and mercy just as you have, which is cause for great rejoicing. Or, if they persist in hard-hearted sin and unbelief, they will be recipients of the sentence that God describes here. Either way, it is not yours to hold on to. It is not your burden to bear. And before we discuss this sentence of God's punishment against the wicked, it is important and appropriate that we note Three things about these wicked people, lest we think our God unduly harsh. And the first is that man is unable to pay back the Almighty for his sin. You you can't do just enough good works to cover up the bad ones. If you run one red light, you can't stop twice at the next one and make it okay. Man is unable to justify himself before God. He's unable to atone for his sin. So God must do something about it. The second thing that we need to note about these sinners is that they are not pleading for God's mercy. Because there's nothing man can do about his sin, his mercy is the only hope we have. It's the only hope that Joel was able to lay before the covenant people in the preceding chapters. And these hard-hearted rebels have no desire for mercy. They have not sought it. They have refused to come and seek grace while it may be found. And that leads us to the final thing to note about the recipients of this judgment. This happens on the day of the Lord. 
This happens on the last day. Again, these people, as O. Palmer Robertson reasons, these people have had an opportunity all their lives to confess their sins to God. Their consciences have condemned them, but they have done nothing. And now they stand before the judge's bench on the day in which sentence is to be executed. At this point, it is clearly too late to make amends. Close quote. See, the Bible teaches in our passage this morning, as well as several other places, that there will be a day of judgment. And in this passage, it takes the form of a great last battle. And the battle begins with the Lord summoning all the armies of the earth. He calls them out in verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. You know, this is the same language that he used earlier in chapter 1 in verse 14 when he called the people of Judah to consecrate a fast and a solemn assembly. And you may recall, if you think back, that 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 fasting, that solemn assembly, that seeking of grace and mercy extended to the whole of the community, right? It went from the elders to the nursing infants and everyone in between. Newly married, doesn't matter. You have to be there. And that's the same kind of breadth, that's the same kind of depth that he's issuing this consecration for war. It is to all the armies of the world. And he says specifically, I want you to bring your mighty men. And that word mighty, it means more than exceptionally strong. It has the idea of bring your champion, bring your hero. If this had been the ancient Philistines, he would have said, bring me Goliath of Gath. If this had been ancient Greece, he would have said, bring me Alexander the Great. If this had been 18th century, 1800s Europe, he would have said, bring me Napoleon. Bring me the very best warriors that you have. Bring them all. And he calls them further to bring every piece of artillery they can get their hands on. He says, even beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears in verse 10. Now that may sound some alarms in your mind. It may call to mind other familiar verses, verses such as Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4, where those prophets prophesied the flip side of this, telling uh, the people that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks as they journey up to the mountain of the Lord. And there is considerable debate about which prophet is paraphrasing who. I happen to think Joel wrote first, and so Isaiah and and Malachi are paraphrasing him. It's ultimately immaterial. Because the point is, with laying these verses side by side, as glorious and wonderful as the mercy that God desires to show for his people that will come to him in repentance and faith, so equal and opposite will be the fury that he will pour out on the wicked at the last day. The army of mankind does not stand a chance. They are pitiful in his sight. Even the Lord can't help but mock a little bit in verse 10. He says, let the weak say, I am a warrior. And that word for warrior, it's the same root word that we were just talking about a moment ago for the mighty men. And the Lord is saying, you may regard them as mighty, you may regard them as warriors, but I know that they are weak. This is the equivalent of the, the young boy who, who flexes in the mirror with his shirt off and, and he looks in the reflection and sees Arnold Schwarzenegger or some other famous bodybuilder. But the Lord sees a scrawny, puny weakling. That's reality. That's who these people are. That's, what they, that's the, stand, the chance that they stand against the armies of the living God. And so the Lord, the Lord summons his army in verses 
13 to 16. And he uses two metaphors to describe what they will do in the valley of decision. They will be like men who go into the harvest cutting down the corn stalks, for the harvest is ripe. The army of Yahweh will tread the army of the wicked like grapes in a wine press. One commentator summarizes, the harvest depicts the cutting down of the armies, while the wine press picturesquely illustrates the accompanying bloodshed. And it says that the, this will be, the vats will overflow for their evil is great. And, and notice the simplicity which, with which he describes it. These are common everyday activities. It's just another day at the office. When we speak about this great battle of Armageddon as it's described in Revelation, and that's what Joel is describing here. I think some of us get the idea of some kind of close cut match that the good guys are going to eke out in the end. That is not the picture the Bible paints. We all know what it's like to come to a highly anticipated sports game and and expect a a, a close back and forth, and it winds up that one side completely blows the other one out. That, that is more in line with what the Bible would describe this as. It will be great and awesome in terms of its scope, but it will be remarkably one-sided. As Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress, which we sang just moments ago, speaking of the day when the Lord will do battle with Satan and all of his demons, he says what? One little word shall fell him. And he's drawing on imagery from the New Testament where Paul writes, the man of lawlessness will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. It is going to be remarkably one-sided. And Joel writes, there will be many. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, he says in verse 14. Now, some well-meaning evangelistic preachers have taken this verse and others like it to suggest that what's going on is, is you're in the valley of decision and you must decide this day whom you will serve. Will you go after the Lord in repentance and faith or will you persist in your own sin? It's your decision is the way it's normally styled. I have no idea where they got that idea. That is not what's going on here by any stretch of the imagination. James Boyce writes, the one making the decision is not the one who has rejected Christ. It is the Christ whom he or she has rejected. This is God's decision, a decision that will determine people's destinies forever. And if you are here today and you do not know the Lord, in this life that you now live, you are not living by faith and the one who loved you and gave himself for you, then I would urge you to consider what awaits in the valley of decision. Our confession of faith summarizes the biblical teaching this way. The wicked, and then it very clearly defines who that is, not necessarily the worst person you can possibly think of, but no, the wicked is those who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They shall be cast into eternal torments, and punished with everlasting destruction. If you are here this morning, and you don't know the Lord, and you have not repented of your sin, and you have not sought to follow Christ in new obedience, I warn you now, the Bible is very clear. There is no middle ground. So terrible and dreadful are the vows of destruction that he has for those who are not his people. I hope you realize that everlasting destruction does not mean that you are destroyed and then for everlasting you don't come back. That's not what it means. 
Everlasting destruction is the exact opposite of everlasting life. Everlasting life is the ongoing process of growth and grace and joy and happiness to all eternity. Everlasting destruction is the process of being destroyed forever. Bit by bit, over and over and over again. That is what awaits those who do not know the Lord for all eternity. But remember, our prophet says that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It does not have to be that way for you. Why should you not be those who call on the Lord? And for the Christian, the application is likewise clear. We must warn others of the wrath to come. We must snatch them as brands from the fire, as it were. We must tell them that they too can find refuge in Christ because he drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath against all who would repent and believe the gospel. On the cross, he offered his own life as a substitutionary death to perfectly atone for the sins of his people. And that can be for you if you will repent and believe. And this great act of, of grace, Christ taking our sin upon himself and carrying it to the cross, allows God to remain just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. But we must warn them before the valley of decision. We must warn them while there is still time. And this is the dichotomy that Joel sets for us as he begins to round out his prophecy in verse 16, saying that the Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. The heavens and the earth stand here as shorthand for all of the created order. And the reason that they quake is the very voice that once said, let there be, and then there was, now roars that the first heaven and the first earth must pass away. They will be undone. But did you notice that there's a contrast? Second part of verse 16 begins with that all-important word, but in contrast to that, in contrast to the roaring voice of a lion, the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. How is it possible for the same God to be both a lion ready to destroy and a refuge and safe haven for his people? He is the same God. The difference is who approaches him and on what grounds. There's a famous sketch that was done in the 1890s and was published in a German humor magazine. You've probably seen it before and just didn't know where it was from. But if you look at it from one angle, it is undoubtedly, unmistakably, a rabbit. But if you look at it from a different angle, it is unmistakably, undoubtedly, a duck. Perhaps you've seen this before. What makes the difference is you and how you're thinking and how you approach it. Or maybe you remember the viral sensation from some years ago of the dress. There was a picture of a dress that made rounds all over social media. Was it white and gold? Or was it black and blue? It was the same dress and people interpreted it in completely different color patterns. Why? Because the difference was them. In the same way, what makes the difference between the roaring lion and the safe haven and refuge is you. Are you one who approaches the Lord washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? Or do you approach him on your own merits? 
For those who approach him washed in the blood, the day of the Lord is no longer a day of fear and trembling, but it's a day of joy and great gladness. It is a day to enter his refuge, for that is what he is to his people. And so much of the language from, from here on out is drawn, drawn from familiar Old Testament imagery. Imagery of the Garden of Eden, and it picks up several uh, uh, things from the Psalms, and, and he takes those Old Testament themes, things that they would have been familiar with, and he infuses them with a future redemptive significance. One scholar astutely notes, so much of Joel's eschatology is but the themes of Judah's worship projected on the screen of Israel's future. You see, the allusions to Eden would have, kept, would have been captured in the construction of the tabernacle as well as the temple at that time. And the Psalms would have made up so much of their liturgical worship. And so what Joel is doing is he's taking the familiar rhythm of their worship and he's saying, this is pointing beyond that. This is pointing to eternity. And by the way, that is why Presbyterians and the Reformed tradition are so uptight about the regular principle of worship. It's not just our hobby horse that we ride on. No, it's because what we're doing now is communing with the living God and being prepared for eternity. It's the Bible's eschatology. It's the Bible's uh, philosophy of worship. And and so what we're doing uh, is being pointed towards the future. And we'll see this in verses 17 to 21, focusing our attention briefly on each of these rich blessings. The judgment of the enemies of God's people has been the vehicle, if you will, to bring in these eschatological blessings. First, look at verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. The Lord promises perpetual, perfect holiness for his people. Eden had been perfectly holy. Eden was paradise. And Adam and Eve were made upright, and all that was in it was very good. Until the serpent slithered into the scene. And he brought with him death and all the other curses for sin in this life. And and what the prophet Joel says is, I promise you a holy city where no stranger, that is, no one outside of covenant fellowship with the Lord, will ever enter in. Or as the Apostle John would put it in the book of Revelation, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, and no one who does what is detestable or false. And what a glorious day that will be. In a perfectly holy environment, void of all sin, all uncleanness, all filth, I labored for a long time to find an illustration for this, and I couldn't. Because we don't have a frame of reference for it. We live in a fallen world. We have no frame of reference for a, for a place that is perfectly holy, but we are promised that we will. The glorious hope that is for the people of God. But the, the, the blessings do not stop there. The cup, it overflows. As he says in verse 18, In that day the mountains will, will drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk, echoing the, 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 the passages about the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But I want to draw our attention to where it says, And all the stream beds of Judah will flow with water, and a fountain shall come from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. And the language there is echoed at many places in the Old Testament. The house of the Lord, of course, point, at this point in history is the Solomonic Temple. And the point is that as we draw near to the Lord in worship, as we draw near to His house, we receive that, that living water that equips us for everything that we need in this life. This is the very thing that Jesus Himself, the true temple, offered the woman at the well. He who takes of the water that I will give 
a spring of water will well up in him to eternal life. And that, that living water becomes ours the moment that we first for ourselves taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we are assured that it will be enjoyed to its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. And because this fountain comes from the house of the Lord, it will never run dry. It will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. It will go even to the Valley of Shittim. Now I'm going to go on a limb and guess that no one's planning a vacation to the Valley of Shittim anytime soon. But what it is, is it's a desert desolate, dry, arid land that they passed through in their wilderness wanderings. And the Lord says, the blessings that will flow from my house, the blessings that will flow from my people will go even there, even to the furthest, most desolate parts of the earth. They will be in abundance. And so many of us waste our time looking for that abundance and that joy and that fulfillment in this life. But it is not here. When we do that, we are like those who seek the living among the dead. Let it not be so. And we find one more promise to consider as we wind down this morning in, in verse 20. Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. The promise of, a, of holiness and abundance, it will endure forever. Maybe you have a fond memory in your own life that you look back on and, and you wish that those days had not ended. Maybe you look back fondly on your wedding day and, and what a glorious, wonderful event that was. Or you look back fondly on, on those days when you had a newborn and, and, and there was a, a, a fresh life in the home. Or you have another season of life, maybe it was college or early in your career or whatever, that's very special to you and, and you look back on it fondly as the good old days. And maybe you, you resonate with the statement, I, I wish there was a way to know that you were in the good old days while it was still the good old days. But what a joy it is to be a Christian. And to know that those were not the good old days. To know that the good old days are, are, are yet to come. And that they will never pass away. And they will never end. World without end. Amen. And finally, Joel closes his prophecy with these words, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And, and in this way, he closes by once again linking the vengeance that he has for his enemies with the desire for presence and dwelling with his people. Note that the, the prophet does not end on the note of judgment and destruction. He, note, he ends on the presence of, or he ends on the point of presence with his people. That is the Lord's chief desire. We see again that God's judgment of the wicked is the loving means to the end of the eternal blessing of his people. And there will come a day when the night will pass and the warfare will be ended. And all that will be left is for the saints and their triumphant, bright array to look on the King of glory as he passes on his way. And you and I will be there and we will sing praises to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. God in heaven, we do give thanks to you for the prophet Joel. We thank you for his rich comfort and assurance and what a joy it has been to study his his prophecy these last few months. I pray even now that you would build up your people an assurance of the great glories that await. For Lord, I consider indeed that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that we've revealed to us. I pray that you'd build us up in that. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.